Welcome to the Of Music and Men recap episode. So as you know by now, each novella episode or TV show episode, whichever way you want to think about it, each one of those gives us a certain amount of podcast episodes. So for the pilot, episode one, we had eight podcast episodes, and those were the past, uh, the previous eight episodes that you listened to here. So now, before we get into episode two and its set of episodes for the podcast, just want to give you a quick recap of episode one. You like funny stories? Picture a brown box. It's unassuming and unpretentious in its presentation, yet it's massive and it's statuesque. It sits on the corner of V and 9th Streets in Northwest. You would never know what goes on inside unless, of course, you already know what's going on inside. That's what you get from this D.C. landmark. It's a building. No signage, no windows, no impression that it even wants anything to do with you. Unless, of course, it opens up and lets you in. Now, on the inside, well, (laughs) that's another story. Because inside is a story. It's decades in the making. It's history, romance, drama, and action. All packed into a big brown box. Now today, it's a Washington monument right up there with Ben's Chili Bowl and maybe the White House. It's the place Alanis Morissette would rock when she was testing out those songs that ended up becoming Jagged Little Pill. It's where Dave Grohl wasn't THE Dave Grohl when he first blessed that stage, but just another kid from down the street who eventually got his shot with Dane Bramage, which was before Foo Fighters, before Nirvana, hell, even before his scream days. It's the place where Public Enemy gave a sneak preview of their eventual hit, 911 is a joke. Because I mean, of course, you know, only in 1989 was something like that the case. So, there I was, standing in front of the general manager of this epic joint, putting forth my best effort to try and become a part of this history. What better way to get on a person's good side than to tell them a story? I mean, especially one that contains something in it for them at the end. I've learned people in power always, always like it when there's something in it for them. And so, that is why I asked... You like funny stories? I didn't wait for her to reply before I went on. I don't mean funny like ha-ha type funny. I mean funny like serendipitous, you know, the meant-to-be type funny. The kind of funny that makes you believe that someone, somewhere, is looking out for you. She gave me her attention through squinted eyes that kind of made me a bit nervous. I mean, she might have been older than 50, but she looked active. And she was tall, and I wouldn't be surprised if I found out that she'd been a decent basketball player at one point in her life. The music geek in me naturally thought of Sue Sylvester from Glee, which actually didn't help the intimidation factor at all. But I took a quick breath and refocused my story. I mean, it was a good story. One with the kind of ending that might make me a lifelong friend in this woman. At least that's what I thought. I proceeded with confidence. Head up, shoulders back. So last night, an old mid-sized luxury sedan that had 
actually aged pretty well considering the mileage. It was cruising along Limekiln Road when suddenly it smashed right into a deer. I mean, or deer smashed into it. Either way, there was an accident. The driver wasn't hurt, though, thank goodness. In fact, he got out of the car when he realized that it wasn't going to move because of the carcass trapped underneath it. I felt her impatience looming as she started to take a deep sigh. Wait, wait, it gets better, though. So apparently someone called the cops because they got there in minutes and they immediately caught the stench of alcohol emanating from him with every single breath he took. I mean, he was less than a mile away from his house and they arrested him for driving under the influence. Do you believe that? (laughs) By the way, the deer didn't die from the hit, but the cop had to put it out of its misery. Got about 90 seconds. Wait, 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 wait. That driver was 23-year-old Jim Nightingale. I revealed, fighting the urge to smile as she stared at me for a moment before dropping her head with a deep sigh. She obviously already knew what I was telling her, but now she knew that I knew. But I finished anyway. You know, good measure. Oh yeah, he was also driving on a suspended license, so can't leave the state of Virginia anytime soon. Now look, Here's the funny part now. I mean, not ha-ha, but the other funny. Gavin DeGraw is going to be here this week. Without warning, she started walking away from me. But I felt like I had her on the ropes now. I was this close to getting what I'd come for, so I followed, walking closely behind her, still talking. And since Jim Nightingale is obviously going to be unavailable... How the hell do you know all that about Jim? She barked as she stopped and turned back to look at me. Her gaze, I'll admit, caused me to miss a breath, but I quickly recovered and came back with a body blow, dealt with a smile that showed absolutely no sign of weakness. I know a lot of things, like I also know that Gavin DeGraw is going to be in Chicago the same day for another event, and according to my sources, the earliest he can get here to D.C. would be 6 p.m. Reagan, Dulles... BWI, no matter which airport he's flying into, there is no way he can get off a plane, get here, be on that stage by 7 o'clock. And for a split second, she probably didn't even notice it, but I did. She looked down, and that is when I knew I had her. All I had to do was go in for the knockout. And that's with perfect traffic. You need an opener. Nightingale is out. But someone somewhere is looking out for you. I couldn't read the look on her face, but I chose to think it was one of admiration. You know, she was a woman of power. I was on my way to being her coeval someday. I had played this whole thing flawlessly. So I stood there, refusing to break eye contact, as I waited for something like an old attagirl, giving my approach to solving a problem for her that she didn't even know I knew she had. Now, I'm not usually this smug, so let me provide you with a bit of context so you know how I got here. Jazz Club. 
sometime during one of the golden ages in music, an aspiring music mogul, who will just call Tom, fresh out of grad school, planted his feet firmly onto the yellow brick road, or better, the gum-stained asphalts we'll call the sidewalks of New York. Now, it wasn't long before Tom was embracing life in a quaint, overpriced Manhattan apartment. More nights out than in with the city that never sleeps. And embracing his new gig as an artist and repertoire rep at, mm, let's just call it, Big Music Company. Those nights out on the town were actually part of the job as an A&R guy. Go to a few clubs, listen to a few voices. He was on the lookout for something with what he simply called, mm, it. It could come in any form. Him, her, tall, round, any form. Of course, except old. He never worked with anyone over the age 26. So let's say he found your typical cute, white, guitar-playing 19-year-old Joe Schmo on the stage in some dive bar getting panties thrown at him, literally and, of course, figuratively, but more so literally. Doesn't matter. If Tom liked him and thought he had it, then he figured you'd like him. So he'd invite him back to his office, introduce him to a few other Toms like himself. Then he would offer him coffee or water, along with a recording contract. He may or may not say the exact words, Sign this. It's the only way anybody will care about your music. But that'd surely be what he meant. So, Joe Schmo, smitten by the idea of being a star, now has Big Music Company working for him with all of its money, its power, its respect, their job to make sure you not only know Joe Schmo, but that you buy Joe Schmo. For ages, this was just the way business was done. The proverbial blueprint to music success. That is, until technology changed everything. Making music no longer required millions of dollars, thousands of hours, hundreds of people. In fact, folks no longer even needed stores to sell or get a hold of it. So, after one album that achieved the sales equivalent of plastic rather than platinum, Big Music Company would see absolutely no reason at all to continue working with a Joe Schmo. Because here's the thing. By the turn of the century, with just a few hundred bucks, a few hours, the help of a few friends, the same thing Joe signed his life over to Big Music Company to do could be done out of an apartment. (laughs) In fact, with so much of the business being done in apartments, dorm rooms, and coffee shops, Big Music Company eventually saw no reason to keep their offices staffed with so many Toms. Welcome to the age of digital supremacy. Where vinyl records are more popular than ever, yet record stores are mere folkloric myth. And with that proverbial blueprint to doing business and music having long since crashed and burned, independent musicians continue to find ways to exploit their talent all by themselves. But to be successful, amateurs do need something, some kind of business or people or team of business people that can take care of all that other stuff while they're out there rapping and singing and playing all over the place, right? Now, if only there was such an infrastructure for this kind of thing. (laughs) 
Enter me. Equipped with a three-year-old laptop, I just finished paying off three months ago. 300 square feet of my dad's basement, which I hijacked four years ago, which doubles as my home and my headquarters, armed with not much more than sheer will and a go-getter mentality. Now, believe it or not, I am Tom's dream. Now, back in the day, being signed to a record label would have meant that an artist had to sign their lives over to a big company. But today, this... The three-year-old laptop, the 300-square-foot space, the girl with nothing but hustle, is the big music company. What Tom had, the money, the power, the team of other Toms imposing their will. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have any of that. (laughs) No big office building either. I also don't have the luxury of being in the music city. And around here... (laughs) Lights are out, doors are locked, no, bolted shut by 2 a.m., so we can't claim to never sleep either. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Washington, D.C. The White House, monuments, museums, memorials, politics, I know, I know. Not exactly what comes to mind when you think of music. In fact, I really don't have any of the things I need to make my job easy. Then again, whoever said it was supposed to be? dreams for my little company to be great someday. But not just dreams, actual plans to get it there. And I know what you're thinking. Another typical millennial girl, all career, no love life. And well, you're right. (laughs) But you know what? It's not my fault. Seriously, I have the perfect explanation for why, unfortunately, my plans for success in business don't actually translate to dating. Here's the thing that most people don't know. Our nation's capital has the lowest marriage rate in the country, but the highest number of same-sex couples. That means D.C. could literally be the gayest place in America. I mean, in order to find love, a single girl might have better luck finding, well, a single girl. But for those of us who prefer our mates be from Mars, we might have to start going there to find them. Because when it comes to the game of love, the most powerful city on Earth is a forlorn underdog. All of this makes great fodder for my often self-indulgent social media rants where I chronicle my life's two greatest hurdles music, and men. It makes for even better lunch conversation, especially when the players are my closest friends. 
Now look, I must warn you before I introduce them that you will probably have never met two more contrasting figures before in all your life. Even my divorced parents weren't as opposing in personality as these two, although somehow Ty and Jay managed to remain rather close and relatively civil. Perhaps it was because they never had to live together. That usually helps. Today's lunch takes place at our favorite mutually agreeable place to both eat and take in the view of DC's array of similar hipster artsy folk, busboys and poets. Now, Busboys is a restaurant slash coffee shop slash bookstore aptly named after Langston Hughes, who, before his acclaim as one of the great American poets, worked as a busboy at the Wardman Park Hotel. It's the kind of spot where you'll find people who care whether their coffee is fair trade and their food is organic, sustainable, hormone-free, and, of course, locally sourced. Really? I haven't completely given up. I just, I don't know. Ty tried to explain, searching for the words as if they were somewhere in that plate of salad on the table in front of her. I just changed my perspective a bit, I guess. The subject was the non-date dinner she'd had last night with a guy from the building where she worked. Things had gone nicely. Not bad. Not great. Just nice. But not nice enough to do it again. Like I explained, D.C. is a different place when it comes to finding love. And like the very liberal town that it is, said difficulty does not discriminate based on race, religion, creed, and despite the statistic, sexuality either. Cisgender heterosexual women, however, was the group I could confidently speak for. It was bleak. There are victims, a category under which I'd file my friend Ty. Full name. Talia Elise Aldrich, age 30, birthplace Lagos, Nigeria, but also calls Naples, Florida her home since she did grow up there. Now, Ty's got one of those faces that makes you feel special when you're around her. It's her natural attentiveness coupled with her bright, cheerful eyes that appear as if they're smiling at you even when she's not. They sit on a round face with cheekbones that are almost artistically high, covered by brown sugar-colored skin. The kind of brown that's golden in the right kind of light. She's the epitome of an American girl, down to her origins being in another country. She's the youngest of her parents' four children, and the only girl. And I've joked with her on many occasions about whether she's an actual princess. Yes, it is her father's nickname for her, but, you know, I have reason to believe he means it literally when he refers to her that way. And, perhaps in jest, she has never formally denied my allegations, only acknowledged my inquiry with a snicker that makes me feel silly for even asking, yet still curious. Nevertheless, she gives off an aristocratic vibe that could come across intimidatingly if she wasn't so southernly gleeful. Despite her very traditional and conservative upbringing, she keeps an open mind, and she's the most loving person I know, which makes it easy to talk to her about anything because she tries her best not to judge, but rather to understand. 
Armed with an Ivy League education from Princeton, she was now a postdoctoral fellow, so her chosen profession as a psychologist was a perfect fit for this natural skill set. So what made her a victim? Well, she met a guy just out of undergrad, dated him for a few years, and said yes to his proposal while in med school. I was a bridesmaid at their beautiful midsummer night ceremony in Rock Creek Park. Now, nearly three years to the day, she was reclaiming her maiden name before she was able to add the title doctor. She just signed next to the X at the bottom of the divorce papers. She was serving him. Even with all that's going on, I can't bring myself to give up. Jesus, would you stop staring at my hair? I'd been caught. I had just seen her the day before when her hair was normal. At least normal to how I was used to seeing her. But now, gone. All of it. Except for about a half inch or so. I couldn't help but stare. So I said, but it's gone. Like, all of it. My observation went ignored. My point is, she went on, the statistics just aren't in our favor. Hmm, I beg to differ. Jay disagreed, of course, sitting behind a burger and some fries, but concentrating on those fries, though. Now, Jay was one who never had a problem finding something new to do on a weekend. In fact, she routinely met good-looking, successful, available men with whom she shared a common interest course, the most common of interests, almost always being sex. Jay would be in the category perpetrators. Full name, Hesinia Lorina Loriano. Age, 28. Birthplace, Chicago, Illinois. Now, you have to admit, some women just have it. And Jay, well, she's one of those women. She isn't just pretty, she's actually striking. And she's the kind of girl who walks into every room as if she owns it and everyone in it. Head up, shoulders back, and a strut that actually might rival Naomi Campbell's. Whether it's true or not, she knows that every man wants her and that every woman, well, this is DC, so there are plenty of women out there who want her too. She's slightly taller than average by about an inch. She has soft, curly hair, which always varied in style. Lately, she kept it on the shorter side. She's a slightly darker version of her mother, an El Salvadorian immigrant who found love in a terribly hopeless place when she fell for a married dentist whose office she briefly worked for during that time. Stereotypes, even those of a positive nature, are still stereotypes. So, I won't say that all products of Howard University habitually enforce the advice, dress like you have the job you want, but Jay, who graduated top of her class from the Story University, is certainly one of them. Fashion and style comes effortlessly for her, and she's always very put together. Although Ty's always been more of the textbook big sister type, I actually kind of looked up to Jay a little more. I mean, I've always admired Ty, but though I've never said this out loud, I've always been a bit enamored by Jay. Perhaps part of me wishes that I were more like Jay in some ways. Perfect example. 
Jay explained. This guy I met the other day. At Trader Joe's, Ty exclaimed, cutting her off to explain this apparent absurdity to me. She doesn't even cook. She uses the grocery store as her own personal meat market. Jay carried on without a hitch. 32 years old, single professor from St. Louis. Georgetown University brought in him and five more just like him to fill a void in their liberal arts department. We're hooking up tomorrow night. Seriously. Is that all it's about? Ty asked, although I had a sneaking suspicion she already knew the answer. My point is, men are coming and going all the time. And perhaps to amuse Ty, Jay continued with, I just like to meet the ones coming so I can come with them. Ty snuck in a sigh, head shake, and eye roll all in one gesture before. I can literally feel your eyes on my head, she said to me. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been checking for a motherfucking dragon tattoo for the last 10 minutes myself. With another roll of the eyes, Ty said, Jesus, it's just hair. It's not like I cut off an arm, which started a back and forth between them. Yeah, but it was your hair. But I'm not my hair. No, but it was kind of you. <laughs> well, it's gone now, okay? With a laugh Jeez. that kept her position in the debate light and playful, rather than defensive. And in the same breath as Ty peered over Jay's shoulder, squinting as she apparently recognized the tall, pantsuit-clad woman talking to the hostess at the front of the restaurant, she revealed, I know that lady, seemingly already reminiscing as she continued eyeing the woman who was likely waiting for a table to open up. She then proceeded to tell us who she was, her former college advisor, who was the one who recognized her listening skills, uncanny empathy, and knack for asking all the right questions and encouraged her to pursue a career in psychology. As she finished filling us in, the woman, who was following the hostess by this time, was coming right toward us. When she was close enough, they caught eyes as they both began smiling at this unexpected encounter. Professor Danois, she then stood up and accepted a handshake from the woman well before one was even offered. Talia, wow. It's so good to see you. And please, it's, it's Juliet. We're not on campus anymore. As they shared a similar laugh, which seemed to start and stop on the same note. I'm sorry, Professor Dent, Juliet, these are my friends, Kenya and Jay. How do you do? She asked, likely rhetorically, as she softly, almost daintily, took each of our hands one by one for a shake. Before either of us could offer greetings of our own to her, Ty went on. Professor Danois was the reason I enjoyed my time at Princeton so much. And then she looked at Juliet and asked, what brings you here to D.C.? Well, and she paused to control a smile that was trying its best to creep its way onto her lips. I just accepted a position as the dean of Prince Hall University School of Medicine. Ty's eyes became as big as saucers as she controlled herself from shouting, Oh my goodness, congratulations! Juliet tried again to contain her blush, even though she knew that this was a very big deal. Again, she failed as she smiled and thanked Ty. Prince Hall University is a private institution founded in 1850. Its primary campus is located in the lively Adams Morgan neighborhood of D.C. on roughly 187 acres. And today, it has a total undergraduate enrollment of just under 4,500. Prince Hall University's ranking in U.S. News of Best Colleges generally ranges between 10 and 13, somewhere between Duke and Dartmouth on the National University's list, as it should. 
considering the pretty high academic standards, its robust alumni list, and its multi-billion dollar endowment. You can think of PHU as the NYU of D.C. It's well-versed at many concentrations with its business, law, and performing arts schools bearing the brunt of the weight for its impeccable reputation. I know a lot about this school because, let's just say, I have somewhat of a history with it. But we'll get into those details a little later. Why have we not connected on Facebook, she asked Ty. I'm not on Facebook, Ty said, almost embarrassed by her deliberate decision not to put up with the time suck of social media, as she called it. For the record, it wasn't like she'd left Facebook. She'd never even joined it. Hmm. I thought everyone your age was on Facebook. We were in 2012, Jay said, only loud enough for me to hear her. Juliet then reached into her clutch and whipped out a card, pointing it at Ty as she said, My cell number's on there. Let's meet for lunch. Smiling, Ty agreed that she'd text her within the week, as they shared a little more small talk about life in D.C. Well, uh, I'm supposed to be meeting someone. She looked around to see if maybe she could spot them, her eyes landing on a white guy of average height and even more average looks, wearing jeans and a blazer. Juliet smiled at him before leaning in to be more discreet. No offense, she said, looking at me and Jay, but mutual friends aren't always the best people to arrange your love life. She was talking more to Ty at this point. But this is a big city. I guess I'll have more luck later. The three of us looked at each other because little did she know, the size of this city was quite misleading. When you calculated the number of residents plus the people in surrounding Maryland and Virginia multiplied by the people coming in and going out on a daily basis divided by the square mileage, still, the numbers just didn't add up. She turned and greeted the man as they took seats at a table a few feet away from us. Hey, is it weird that I don't even think about dating that much? I asked out of nowhere as Ty retook her place with us. And this was perhaps the one thing they both could agree on. Yes. Yes. Now, I have no clear-cut category in which to place myself. I'm not a victim, certainly not a perpetrator. In fact, I might be too green to play any position in the game at this point. Full name? Kenya Amani Shaw. Age? 27. Birthplace? Washington, D.C. I'm just a girl who hasn't been on consecutive dates since diving headfirst into my dream of owning a record label. Four years ago. Now consider this. A girl uninterested in the things that interest the rest of the world, but is obsessive about her own interests, which are not typical interests of a girl. Expressing those interests with an unmoved, undeterred passion, she's usually called a nerd. Now, if her interest goes a step further by moving into competitive male-driven industries, she is then aptly referred to as a tomboy. And to take it even further, if these interests of hers are then pursued passionately and in competitive male-dominated domains with a level of assertiveness that says to everyone that she is in it to win it, well, she's then thought of as probably a lesbian. I've been called it all. Nerd, tomboy, lesbo, And I accept this compliment because I might actually be a nerd, 
what the fuck is a tomboy anyway, really? And some of the most powerful, most interesting, most successful women I know are, in fact, lesbians. So if I'm thought of as part of their group, thank you. That, I suppose, is the plight of the modern woman. She's got to be all figured out by the world or risk being labeled or mislabeled. What you need to know about me, though, is simple. I love music. I have a penchant for creative and administrative details. And I like to win. My approach to this life as a future music mogul is like that of an athlete on the road to greatness. I show up early. I stay up late. I study game film, which is to say I like to stay sharp. And usually my main advantage over my competition is my willingness to outwork them. So, I ask you again, is it weird that I don't even think about dating like that? Jay and Ty both thought, yes. (laughs) And as they laughed, not at me, but at their first agreed-upon opinion, ever, I refused to join them as I dropped my head in playful shame. And then I attempted to explain something to the two people who knew me best in this world, which meant they already knew this. Look, it's not that I don't think about men, I do. It's just, I don't really know what to say to the ones I want to meet, and it's really never the ones you want who approach. That is so true. Which is why I go after what I want, Jay said, not revealing anything new. Don't leave it to them, shit, it's 2000 and... Uh, that requires way too much transparency. I used the word transparency instead of the word I should have used, which was confidence. Jay had the confidence. I didn't. Plus, I didn't even know where to start. Well, you can't start it in your father's basement, that's for sure. Hey, why don't you come with us? I'm taking Ty with me to this networking thing. Jay proceeded to describe this upcoming event that she thought I should attend, although I already knew I wouldn't be joining them. As a writer, Jay's main outlet was Face one of the country's top female-focused lifestyle magazines, often referred to as the Lady GQ. So if there was a place with even the slightest hint of eligible bachelors, Jay was sure to be on top of it. Pun very much intended. (sighs) Yeah, I don't know why I'm letting her talk me into going to this thing. Because she needs to get her mind off this divorce paper signing shit and have some goddamn fun. You should come too. Yes, you should. (sighs) Misery sure does love company, doesn't it? And before I could respond, she said, And don't say, I can't. Look, I have artists that have dreams, and they look to me to make plans for those dreams to come true. That means I got work to do. Reminds me, Wisconsin. I had forgotten to put this upcoming meeting in my phone calendar, so I was doing it now. The fuck is in Wisconsin? Jay asked, with seemingly half that burger in her mouth. Not the state. Wisconsin Avenue in Georgetown. I have to meet a guy there about getting Lucas on this 930 Club card. Jesus, you're still trying to get Lucas on that stage? They had heard all my war stories about this. Three times previously, I had met managers or booking agents whose artists were doing shows there and asked if we could join them. All three times, the answer was no. Of course, they didn't know me, so with one in every two people calling themselves a musician... If there were any openings, they'd likely just give that opportunity to someone they knew. And now, the perfect person for my artist to open for was coming to town 
In two and a half days, I had information that would make my plea a slam dunk to get my artist on that card. But I still had no clue who to even talk to. So when Ty asked if I was still trying, I replied, yes, I'm still trying. And preferably, I'd like to do it and get a check. When my artists get paid, I get paid. And I need to get paid. Shit, you need to get laid. (laughs) For the second time at my expense, they shared a laugh. You know what? I'll, I'll admit, Jay was probably right, but she did not deserve the satisfaction of knowing that. After lunch at Busboys earlier that afternoon with the girls, I left with Jay's words stuck in my head. You need to get laid. See, the truth is that my line of work puts me in direct contact with all kinds of men all the time. Granted, they're mostly rappers, singers, and wannabe rockers. Hence, the reason why I almost never have second dates. And then... There were guys like him. The reason for my lack of first dates. Now, the him I'm referring to was the owner of two of the most beautiful brown eyes I have ever seen in all my life. Which I found myself staring into as he helped me to retrieve the mess that had fallen out of my bag and onto the floor of the high-end electronic store showroom. Now... After leaving Jay and Ty earlier, I hopped on the metro and headed all the way across town in the direction of my afternoon meeting. But instead, I found myself loitering inside the tech superstore before I suddenly and mindlessly collided with a so-called genius running by, spilling my entire bag onto the floor. The smarty pants didn't even stop to help me gather my things. Now, the aforementioned him with the deep brown eyes the skin like Godiva, and the beard. And look, I I have a thing for beards. And the curly faded haircut was a customer just waiting to be waited on. I hadn't even noticed him until he was already down on the floor in front of me, helping to collect the CDs and other mess that had fallen out of my bag. Now this could have been it, my chance to be transparent. That thing I said to Jay at lunch earlier, talking to guys required too much of. But it was as if all of the possible words I could have said had fallen onto the floor too. And I was having trouble picking them up as well. It felt like an eternity down there with him on the floor, blanketed by silence. I kept wanting to find those beautiful brown eyes of his again, but I forced myself to focus on the floor in front of me, because of course that was important, right? 
After the five seconds or so that it took, I stood up first and he followed, handing me one last disc. I realized right then that I must have also spilt my breath out onto the floor too when I dropped my things because my lungs were empty. But I somehow managed to graciously mumble, thanks, thank you. And as usual in situations like this, I had no idea what to do, what to say or what to do with my hands. I clumsily leaned onto a tablet or something, causing it to make a noise, which then caused even more anxiety as he smiled and gave a quiet, you're welcome, just as a saleswoman approached saying that she could help him. I stood there and I watched. I watched him walk away, still wanting to say something, but only wishing that I already had. I even started to come up with little scenarios in my head, like, what if I waited outside until he was finished and accidentally, but of course not so accidentally, bumped into him again. Only this time I would... I'm all done, you ready? Interrupted Solomon, my good friend, who, by the way, I didn't think was so good at the moment, as he stepped right in front of me, blocking my view of the guy who I will, from this point on until I learn his name, refer to as Dream Guy. Reluctantly, I nodded yes, that I was ready to go, because I now had no real reason for being in that store. But as we walked toward the exit, I certainly wasn't going to leave without getting one last look at him before I left. Mm. Needing a new motherboard and fan economically made Solomon went on and on, justifying to me why he had just purchased this new laptop he was carrying as we strolled down a bustling rush hour street in Georgetown as a group of people holding signs, some with Maduro or a Venezuelan flag, breezed by us in the same direction. When I told him that I'd be in his part of town that evening, Solomon insisted that I meet him for tapas or coffee or both. The last thing I wanted to do was spend money on a new laptop, but they couldn't save my old lady, so I had to pull the plug. The sales guy was happy to introduce me to something new, though. He glanced down at the bag he was holding. Huh? She's much thinner, and she's fast and easy, just like I like them, he said with a facetious smile. Now, at first glance, it's hard to tell whether my boy Solomon is nerdy or just nice. But in fact, he's both. Solomon Dial is actually one of DC's genuinely nice single guys, a successful nonprofit tech entrepreneur whose company just secured its second round of financing but whose unsuccessful love life perpetually kept him caught between a rock and a bunch of women used to making bad choices. Yeah, a very hard place. Women almost always immediately notice how attractive he is as soon as they meet him. The thing is, though, he doesn't know it. He never dressed like he knew it, wearing khakis, sneakers, and flannel shirts with the sleeves rolled up all the time like it was his uniform. And he didn't carry himself like he knew it standing with a slight hunch, probably from slouching in front of the computer all the time. His smooth, cashew-brown skin, jet-black hair, and almond-shaped eyes were what attracted women to him, though. He's of Indian descent, but was born here, in the States, Aberdeen, Maryland, to be exact, to parents of very modest means. Needless to say, they were quite proud of their little owner of a successful nonprofit startup in D.C., but that hadn't stopped them from questioning him about grandchildren or the opportunity to introduce him to, and I quote, a nice Indian girl. 
By the way, how are things going with uh, that uh, yoga instructor you were all excited about a few weeks ago? He took one of those deep breaths filled with frustrated emotions <sighs> and then answered, Let's just say I'll be spending tonight trying to hit the right buttons on this little beauty. It's so easy to figure out what a computer's doing. And when you can't, all you have to do is force quit and start over. I reminded him, computers are man-made, my friend. Yeah, if only, dude, you know what? I swear to God, if I find out Siri and you are more than just friends and you're going all Joaquin Phoenix from her on me, <laughs> I'm disowning you. <laughs> and this triggered a real hearty laugh from him. I could tell he probably hadn't laughed like that all day. <laughs> My attention, though, was immediately taken by the music coming from across the street in the direction of the Venezuelan embassy. It was a familiar jazz meets hip-hop sound that I had discovered online one day while listening to an indie music station as I worked. What, you know him? That's Willie Ortega, Venezuelan violin player who spoke out against tyranny with his instrument. He was tortured there, beaten, burned, hunted down. He fled here to the States. Now, he's a symbol of his people's struggle. Man, dude's story is amazing. All because he took a figurative knee with his violin, Solomon chimed in. Now, he was watching, too, as the growing crowd outside the place became more excited. And look at that crowd. I guess you find your people, go to where they are, give them what they want. He commented as more pedestrians were being drawn in. Kenya? An unfamiliar and unexpected voice was calling my name. I turned to see a scruffy white dude who could have been 19 or 39 walking toward me. I spotted you, yeah. the hair, as he stopped right in front of me. My big hair had become like vanity license plates. I met this guy only once before, and it was a few months ago, but I did recognize him as he got closer, extending his hand out for a shake. I obliged and wasted no time getting right down to business. Dante, hey, I was actually just on my way over to meet up with you. Please tell me you can get my boy on that stage this weekend. Well, I can get you the person that can get you to the one in charge who should be able to help you, he said as he took a folded piece of paper from his back pocket and handed it to me. This is it? I was looking at a couple of names and a couple of numbers. You could have just texted me this. Look, I don't text things that might come back to bite me in the ass, okay? Ain't nothing here but some names of the guy across the street from the club. He said as if it was obvious. He's your eyes. And the guy with the keys, he lets you in. It's simple. I just kept staring at the paper as if I was expecting something else to appear there that made more sense to me. <coughs> I quickly looked up at him as he rubbed his thumb and his first two fingers together, an apparent indication that he desired some money for this. So I just said, you know what? Brandon got you, implicating the mutual friend who had introduced us. But he wasn't having it. I guess it was like going to a store and telling them that your friend would pay for the stuff later. So after I realized that he wasn't buying it anyway, I began searching around my pockets. Look, five bucks. That's all I have. Handing him a few bowled up one dollar bills. He looked at Solomon, perhaps hoping he would co-sign for me. But Solomon confirmed his non-involvement by just sipping his coffee and continuing to watch the musician across the street. Dante decided to take my crumpled five. But as he left, he made one last request. Tell your boy Brandon he fucking knows me. 
Solomon and I watched him walk off. Man, why the hell is everything in your business so damn sketchy? Is it supposed to be this difficult? Shh, I've been asking myself that for the last four years. I admit it with exasperation. And you want to know the downfall of running an indie label? And then Solomon responded, there's only one downfall? The best indie artists? Man, they can do what I do. So I wonder sometimes if they really need me. I hated to admit this. I absolutely love what I do, but sometimes it could feel like I was doing it all in vain. This was one of those times. But Solomon responded like the good friend that he is. Yeah, but couldn't I make the argument that there are some pretty great musicians out there who couldn't do anything without you? We found that tapas place he was telling me about, and he treated me to what could have been a late lunch or an early dinner had it actually been more than hors d'oeuvre-sized portions. I couldn't stop thinking about what Solomon had just said to me as I made my way back to the Blue Line Metro stop. There are some pretty great musicians out there who couldn't do anything without you. And honestly, he had a point. There are some pretty great musicians out there who couldn't do anything without you. Couldn't do anything without you. When Solomon said that, he was referring to the two diametrically opposing artists that I have on my young record label. Take Taj Kamal, for instance. She's the reason I even started this business of mine in the first place. She had music and no idea what to do with it. I was unemployed with, I guess, time to figure it out. So stepping into this warehouse-looking spot somewhere east of the river that afternoon after parting ways with Solomon, which acted as a rehearsal space because of its really unassumingly great acoustics, my eyes were instantly stapled to TK, seemingly skating around that stage in figurative concert with her band, playing to no audience, as these memories of our less-than-humble beginnings danced through my head. I stood there analyzing this entire skeleton performance. How she moved, how they played off her direction with improv, how her take on hip-hop perspired with the heart and grit of the 90s, but breathed with the energetic social existentialism of today. It had been four years now since she and I had become a tandem. A couple albums and a couple mixtapes later, and here we are, finishing up LP number three and trying at least to figure out how exactly we were going to make some money with this one. All right, that's it. Take five, she said to the four others behind her, all wearing or holding different instruments. She hopped off the stage and started toward me, looking taller than her usual five feet and four inches. At 28, she still hadn't lost hope in the idea of getting taller. So, she sometimes attempted to make herself appear more grandiose, wearing shoes that set atop 
extra thick platforms or hills. Today, however, must have been one of those days when the effort was overlooked or perhaps just underappreciated. Barefoot now, I figured it was safe to assume she decided that today was the day to just work with what she had. If she had any insecurities at all, the desire to be an inch or two taller might have been one of them, although she would never outright admit this. Her mother was an incarnation of Nefertiti, a Baltimore-bred Egyptian who at one time modeled for a living. And her father? (laughs) He was Don Cheadle's doppelganger. Man, with those genes, TK could quite literally have been 50 and you wouldn't know it. And with her flawless, butterscotch complexion and girlishly innocent eyes, which sat under a field of ombre locks that finished in aubergine these days, the unexpected sighting of makeup that afternoon didn't add a single year to her appearance. It did, though, ever so slightly enhance her natural beauty, a quality, unlike her height, she actually preferred to play down rather than up. Despite the often changing color of her hair, you would notice its natural style before you did any eccentricities. Without her ever saying a word to you, you'd certainly guess correctly just by looking at her that as an African-American, TK was much prouder about the former part of her race rather than the latter. Western culture and style just was not appealing to her. But over the years, we'd worked together to shape her message lyrically to be quite palatable to the colonizers, while maintaining its true intention for those who really needed it. So yeah, Lauren and Latifah would be very proud. We just needed to get to a point where they would actually care. Hey, she said without a smile, as she stepped closer to me, stopping short of any physical greeting. No hug, no handshake, not even a fist bump. When we first met, while working at a now-defunct social media startup geared toward music fans about eight years ago, I thought that maybe this kind of sudden, dry, non-greeting was because she was Muslim. I didn't know. I, I knew the innocent contact under American circumstances between opposite sexes was prohibited, so I figured maybe it was across the board. It's not. Had we met more recently, I might have considered it a personal preference not to be too friendly, since she did have a partner. In fact, her three-year-old marriage had already produced a two-year-old kid. But the stoicism in our meetings had nothing to do with that either. I realized early on that TK just had her quirks, and things she deemed unnecessary, like small talk, appetizers, and touching for no reason, were among the top three. Needless to say, our initial encounters always felt very abrupt. So what's up? She asked. To which I replied, "Mm, cardio. Oh yeah, and not getting to the point quickly enough was another one of her pet peeves. So midway through the fourth bar, you take this unusually uncomfortable breath, almost like a gasp for air. And it's because the sequence of metaphors before don't allow you to breathe naturally in order to give the delivery you're going for. So yes, cosmetically, you're in decent shape, although you could stand to gain a pound or two, maybe. But cardiovascularly, or maybe it's cardiovascular-wise, you're unable to effectively give the performance you desire. So cardio, run, swim, bike, 
half an hour, four to five times. I'm surprised you're here and not getting cardio yourself, running around jumping through hoops for Bieber. I got what she was implying, but offered the rebuttal. Hey, Lucas is far more James Bay than he is Justin Bieber. You're so proud of yourself because you know the difference, aren't you? I was ready to move on, so I let her have that last one. You ever listen to that show on blast? Comes on at 8 o'clock on the radio, which, you know, I don't listen to. Too much Bieber for my taste. Well, guess who they're interviewing this Friday? And it ain't Biebs, baby. She gave me a double take. The first glance was dismissive because obviously I couldn't have been referring to her being the one on DC's top radio station for hip-hop music. The second look, however, was a realization that yes, I was seriously saying that she was the one who was going to be on DC's number one station for hip-hop. So I posed the question before she could ask it. How did I pull off getting you on the highest rated hip-hop show in the city? I didn't say this to her in the moment, but between me and you... The answer? Well, I just asked nicely. But here's how it actually happened. Okay, so the radio station was located atop an eight-story tall building that required a scanning key or combination code in order to get in before even reaching a secured entrance with a guard and another locked door, which I wouldn't doubt requested a secret word before opening. Yeah, Fort Knox, sands the gold. All of that is a moot point, however, when the broadcasters operate outside of the building, which they do sometimes in an effort to connect with their listeners in person. But this was a commercial radio station So even though On Blast featured a segment spotlighting up-and-coming artists by interviewing them and playing some of their music, there was a catch. The so-called spotlight was usually focused on new or unheard of major label artists that needed the promotion. Or who could afford to pay for said promotion? Anyway, there's a system set up within the music industry to keep the little guys, well, little And big radio stations, they do play a part. So someone like me with my little record label, despite anything I'd consider success, wouldn't exactly fit the criteria for this show. Amelia Cruz had been on the radio in D.C. for just 11 months now. She was originally from New York, but took a promotion that brought her here. Hosting On Blast was her first opportunity to lead a show of her own. And so far... The ratings said that she was doing a great job. Amelia was Puerto Rican, had two dogs, loved motorcycles, and although she had relapsed twice before, I was certain that she was still an aspiring vegan. This is the kind of stuff you had to really want to know in order to know it. Scrolling through social media accounts just wouldn't cut it. Finding it required digging much deeper. But why did I know all this, you ask? Well, despite all I know about the radio business and how it works, on multiple occasions I had thoughts about if, and how, I might get TK's music played on that station. I can admit, I can admit, it was a very trivial thing in the grand scheme of things. But every artist wants to feel the joy that comes with hearing themselves on a major radio station, especially one in their hometown. 
And I wanted that for TK. Who am I kidding? (laughs) I wanted it for me too. (laughs) So as serendipity might have it, I was wandering the streets one evening after a meeting trying to decide what was for dinner when I spotted the station truck, table, and banner setting up for a live broadcast. This also happened to be not far from one of the best bakeries in town, which also happened to be a vegan bakery. A vegan bakery that I, as an aspiring, slowly transitioning vegan myself with a monster sweet tooth, happened to frequent on at least a weekly basis. Which means I knew the people there kinda well. It was exactly 5.58 p.m. The bakery closed at 6. The girl's hand was just about to turn the lock on that door when I appeared out of thin air. Actually, I was running and pushed through before she could twist that key. Yeah, I saw that look on her face, the one that comes when you find out there's more work to do as soon as it's time to go home. You think I cared, though? I'd made it. But it was still a roll of the dice because people are either salty snackers or sweet snackers. And of all the research I had compiled, this one small bit of information, whether Amelia was a salty or a sweet, was not something I had learned about her. So I had my fingers crossed, hoping that at least one of her teeth was sweet. I was standing at the radio station pop-up table with a half dozen various flavors of moderately freshly made vegan cupcakes. And as she stood in front of me, nearly salivating, looking down into the box, Amelia, I found, was in fact, yes, a sweets lover. Six flavors, all 100% vegan, I said. She grimaced, surprised that I knew this. I just smiled. And you know, the best place to get these is... I closed the box, revealing the name of the bakery she was just about to say. You know what? They're all yours. I just have one small favor to ask. She looked at me, waiting. My artist, Taj Kamal, I'd like for you to feature her as the spotlight artist on your show. (laughs) That's it? She said as if my request was minuscule while already taking the box from my hand. (laughs) Done. Just give your information to my intern. She was eating a cupcake before I could even thank her. Now, TK stood there waiting for me to give her the answer for how I had gotten her on this radio station. But I figured... Artists don't need to know how the sausage is made. So I didn't bother going into all that with her. To answer the question, I simply told her, (laughs) you know, I have my ways. Uh, But commercial radio, though? It wasn't so much a question as it was an expression of obvious uncertainty toward the idea. We were independent. The plan was to keep it that way. To keep everything independent of big corporation persuasion. Pursuing commercial radio was obviously not a part of the plan. But sometimes, I figured, if you see a way in, you go for it. I know, I know, not part of the plan, I admitted to her. It was, it was a shot in the dark, and I, and I just took it. She sucked in all of the air around us, trying to reconcile this idea. But this was how our relationship went. She trusted me. She believed in me just like I believed in her. 
The bottom line was, she just wanted to make music, not business decisions, which is why we worked so well together. She never gave me any pushback. So I felt free to take chances like this one, even when it fell outside of our original plan. Well, will you at least be there with me? Before I could answer, my phone began singing, muffled as it was buried deep down in the messenger bag that was draped across my chest. As I began my frantic search for the phone with TK watching and waiting, it hit me again. I didn't realize until after I began working with Lucas, my other artist, just how much TK preferred me to be monogamous with my time and attention. With Lucas now, my polyamory kind of bothered her. Yes, yes, I will be there, I responded. But look, I gotta take this. It's someone with some information I need about something, somewhere I need to be. I said with the phone now in my hand. <laughs> and over her shoulder, she shouted. Yeah, you better answer that before you end up saying too much or not enough. You know what? Cardio. Is that enough? I said back to her as I took the phone call, which turned out to be one I had been waiting for all day. So here's how this convoluted mess of a scenario I got myself into was set to go. The guy Dante, the one I'd met up with on Wisconsin Avenue while with my friend Solomon, apparently knew the guy doing renovation work on the club's general manager's house. The handyman would text Mr. Chan when she left for work. Mr. Chan, who was also a patron of this handyman's services, ran a small tax business across the street from the club. Mr. Chan would then text a building manager who not only had the keys to the club, but was also scheduled for a visit that day. That building manager would be the one to let me in. Now that call I'd received while I was with TK was from Dante, guy from Wisconsin Avenue, telling me to be at the club in 20 minutes. The GM, he said, usually only had a 10 to 15 minute downtime window at the club on show days, which was most days. So I had to be precise in arrival and with my pitch. Hey, look, I know it sounds ridiculous, but with all of my lack of luck with getting my guy on that stage, I was willing to give just about anything the old college try at this point. Now, speaking of boxes, I want you to picture that brown box again. The one I was telling you about in the beginning. The one where Alanis Morissette, Dave Grohl, and Public Enemy made history. The one that's unassuming and unpretentious in its presentation, yet massive as it stands statuesque on the corner of V and 9th Streets in Northwest. The one where you would never really know what's going on inside unless, of course, you already knew what was going on inside. That place is called the 930 Club, and that's just what you get from it. At least, that's what I got as I stood on the corner looking up at it from outside. Now, I have been inside before to see shows. Red Gold Green, who's from D.C., 
made a stop on one of their first major tours. I saw Brother Ali with homeboy Sandman here, and I even got to see Adele here as she released 21 and kicked off her tour in the States. So I have a relationship with this place, but not like the one I hope to forge today. As I stood outside going over the pitch I was about to give, the door crept open behind me. And quickly getting my attention was a guy who looked similar to the one who connected us. A white guy of unsubstantial height who was probably younger than he actually looked. He was very unique looking, had the kind of face you would never forget once you saw it. But this guy carried a little bit more weight, actually a lot more weight than his rather lean friend. I assumed this was Pruitt, the guy who I was told would let me in. But he never formally introduced himself, only asked, Kenya, to which I nodded in confirmation. He then motioned his head, signaling me to follow him. I walked in behind him, keeping my eyes on each step I took, because the corridor was quite dark, and counting steps was my way of calming my nerves. Hey. After looking over and noticing where my focus was, he whispered, Head up. Can't let her think you're insecure. Dude, she hate weak people. I didn't bother to explain why my head was down. I just took his advice and pulled it up. And just this simple act along with rolling my shoulders back, which inevitably pushed my chest out a bit, somehow made me feel like Wonder Woman. He stopped at an opening and let me know non-verbally that this was where I needed to be before walking off without so much as a good luck. Feeling alone inside the box now, I took a deep breath and stepped into the main room place was only partially lit given that it was about two hours before doors were set to open and four hours before the headliner would take the stage, which tonight was a punk band out of Philly. And the first thing I noticed was that stage and all that history. Wow. But I couldn't allow myself to remain in awe for more than a second because to the left stood the reason I'd come here. A tall woman in a white Ramones t-shirt standing behind the bar, already, I could see, prepared to dismiss me before she even heard my spiel, before even looking up from her paperwork or whatever, to at least act like she cared about the gift I was here to give her. Whatever it is you're selling, I don't need it, she said with her head still down. As the competitive type, I like to figure out my opponent. But this time, the only information I had on the person in front of me was her name. Bonnie. No last name. And as of only ten seconds ago, I had also learned that she didn't like the appearance of weakness. So I kept my head up and my shoulders back. I made sure I was right across from her opposite the bar, before I said, boy, you sure are a hard woman to track down. And again, 
with no eye contact. Time is spent, but can't be bought. I prefer mine not to be wasted, so... Whatever it is you're selling, I'm I'm not selling anything. I just want five minutes of I'm out of here in four, she offered with a deep breath. And the clock on the wall just above her head became apparent right at that moment. It read 556. Fine, because I only need three. With no other argument coming from her, I took this to mean that I was on the clock. So, I started... Well, my name is Kenya Shaw. I run an independent record label here in D.C., 16-9 Recordings. I had my business card ready in hand. I slid it onto the paper where her eyes were focused so that she had no other choice but to see it. Now, I have two artists. Taj Kamal is one. You might have heard of her. And Lucas, a singer-songwriter. He's who I want to talk to you about. From under my arm, I pulled out a copy of the newspaper that had recently written a favorable article and said, City paper even calls him D.C.'s best-kept secret, I embellished. It actually said one of the city's best-kept secrets, but hey, apples to apples, right? And lastly, I had my cell phone ready to play one of our best videos, an acoustic rearranged cover of Same Old Love, a simple one-shot video of Lucas and his guitar displaying a pure, untouched vocal. That Selena Gomez cover got over 60,000 views in one week. Bonnie appeared to be a bit intrigued at this point. She watched the video for a moment, maybe even two, before looking back to the paper at a picture of the same cute, skinny white boy with the guitar. It was making an impression, I suppose. Congratulations. And that was it. I knew that I would need something else, so I came equipped with a trump card, although hoping that I didn't have to use it. And as contemplation set in at that moment, I subconsciously looked down. It always feels like I can find my words down on the ground when I need them. But that, of course, was the very moment she decided to look over at me, almost catching me, looking weak. I quickly looked up and right into her eyes. And that is when I asked her, You like funny stories? She didn't give me an answer, but she did give me squinted eyes, perhaps wondering where I was going with this line of questioning. My question was rhetorical, so I went on. I don't mean funny ha-ha. I mean funny like serendipitous, you know, meant-to-be type funny. The kind of funny that makes you believe that someone, somewhere, is looking out for you. Well, you know how this goes, right? I tell her about Jim Nightingale, that car accident, the poor dear, aw, and the fact that her headliner is without an opener for the show here this Sunday. How the hell do you know all that about Jim? She said, turning back to me after having begun to walk away once she realized why I was there. Her gaze caused me to miss a breath, but I quickly recovered and came back with a body blow, starting with a smile that showed absolutely no sign of weakness. I know a lot of things, like 
I also know that Gavin DeGraw is going to be in Chicago the same day for another event. And according to my sources, the earliest he can get to D.C. would be 6 p.m. Reagan, Dulles, or BWI. No matter which airport he's flying into, there is no way he can get off that plane, get here, and be on that stage by 7 o'clock. And for a split second, she probably didn't notice it, but I did. She looked down. And that is when I knew I had her. All I had to do was close. And that's with perfect traffic. You need an opener. Nightingale is out. But someone, somewhere, is looking out for you, Miss Bonnie. Still looking at me, rather looking through me, she turned her attention to that same clock on the wall, which now read six o'clock on the nose. Okay, so... When you walked in here, I made it clear as crystal that I do not like my time being wasted. So as fascinating and captivating an argument as that is, you just wasted not only your time, but more importantly, mine. I am not the person you talk to about this. You're you're GM. So you should know. I don't organize shows, sweetie. But you can tell me who does. And for the first time in our brief relationship, she offered me a smile. It was a pleasant smile. I even thought that she had a very nice smile and that she should actually smile more often. But with that smile smeared across her face, she secured her papers right next to her ribs, as she said ever so politely, You know so much. You figure it out. I didn't have anything left. And even if I had, I would have been giving it to the back of her head because that was all I could see as she walked out, leaving me alone in the room in that big brown box. is the fifth show I failed to get Lucas on at that place. I said defeated. About a half an hour after leaving 930 Club, after getting so close and being shot down, I found myself sitting in a window seat in Sankofa's, a cafe with an African diaspora-centered theme, sipping a smoothie. Brandon Stakovsky, who I've called Stax ever since we were about 12, because he always knew how to make money, even then, was sitting across from me, wearing a well-tailored suit in that end-of-the-day kind of way, also sipping a smoothie. Well, he said, and looked over at me. The answer wasn't exactly no this time. You just didn't get the right person. And I actually think that he believed that this made it all better because he smiled. So I responded, full of cynicism at this point. Yeah, didn't get the right person to tell me no this time. 
Stax didn't respond, just continued to focus on his drink because he wasn't bothered by the reality that the show was just a couple days away and that I was no closer to getting Lucas on that stage than I was a year ago. All that mattered to him was that there was still a couple more days until the show. Stax is cool in that Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden fight club kind of way. With his dark hair and olive skin, he could pass for Italian. I never knew what his actual ethnic makeup consisted of, but I knew that he checked the white box on applications. We've known each other ever since we were kids, so he was used to not always looking like everyone else whenever he went places with me that specifically catered to my culture. But with his devil-may-care attitude and the sheer comfort he had in his own skin, he actually embraced such rare experiences of feeling like a minority. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Your boy Dante is expecting payment from you, too. You know, for all the work he put in to get me in that club today. (laughs) That was sarcasm. Man, I'm not giving him shit. He owes me. Man, how the fuck you borrow money? to give out at a strip club, he said, remembering something that had absolutely nothing to do with this. Shit, his intel wasn't even worth it, he added back on track. And then it hit him. Fuck, I bet it's a promoter we need. We just need to figure out who. Good thing is, tomorrow's only Friday. A whole new set of 24 hours to try something else. I'm going to get the Spike Lee, he exclaimed out of nowhere, having finally decided on what he wanted to order. The Spike Lee was the name of a sandwich. Stax made his living as an investment consultant for some fancy firm downtown. And he was actually my oldest friend, the only friend who has known me almost my entire life. We grew up as neighbors, just doors apart. So even to this day... He invested in many of my problems as if he had some personal stake in the outcome. I've become used to his use of the term we when referring to solving them. At that moment, a Somali girl, who I assumed was probably a Howard University student given that we were directly across the street from the school, approached the table with a smile and offered to take our order. The smoothie was enough for me at the moment, but I watched as the girl, who wasn't just a waitress but a cashier pulling double duty, smiled and blushed, perhaps taken aback by the forwardness of the only non-black guy in the place at the time, or the fact that he was sitting there with me while still hitting on her. He read her name tag, Desta, and proceeded to call her by her name as if they had known each other for years. Even though we'd only ever been, and only ever will be, just friends, we always debated about whether it was rude of him to leave me hanging during his pursuits, which happened every single time we were out. As Desta walked away, his eyes followed her, examining her backside as if he was trying to lock it into his memory bank, all while concurrently saying, I think I should quit my job. And only then did he look at me, waiting for a response. All I could do was raise my eyebrows, shocked by this admission. He was good at his job, and as far as I knew, he loved it. Or at least he loved the money that it brought him. Either way, I wasn't expecting to hear those thoughts. 
He went on. You know that girl I told you I started seeing a few weeks ago? She's opening a dance school. She fucking loves dance. She's been dancing her entire life. She can't live without dance. She has all this shit laid out. Like, she's got a vision and a plan. Like you. You. You have your shit together. Yet, I'm sitting here with you, I reminded him. Contemplating my next move. Shit, all I have is a job. No move. He had a point. And who was I to talk somebody into staying somewhere they obviously didn't want to be? I hate to say that I dropped out because it makes me feel like a quitter, but I left college after just one year because I just didn't feel like it was offering me anything I really needed to pay for. But also, knowing my friend almost his entire life meant that I knew how much thought he put into each move he made. Since life was a game to him, he always thought two steps ahead. His fearless, careless attitude had boundaries, so he'd only quit the job he had if his next moves were already lined up. I said anyway, quit the job. There, that's, that's your move. Stax stared into his drink silent, probably thinking about the subsequent things that would happen if he took my advice. I don't know whether he liked what he saw during his daydream or not, but after about 10 seconds, he was back. Night's fucking young. What's on your agenda? Well, The Hours is on Netflix. You know, the one with Meryl Streep. I said, watching his eyes glaze over with no recollection of that film. Maybe I'll go home, make some popcorn. And you know, I ever tell you I am a huge Meryl Streep fan? With a grimace, he replied, You know what? Knit a fucking blanket too while you're at it. Jeez, I'm saying it's early. Why don't we go to a bar or something? What about your little dancer friend? I reminded. Knowing he didn't need to, he looked at me and said anyway. Come on, Kay. You know what that is. And I smiled because he was right. I did know. The extent of his relationship with the dancer would likely not develop past the confines of physical intimacy. So, as I always did, I tossed out another question just to give him something else to think about. Well, what about your future wife? You're probably not going to meet her in some bar, my friend. I watched his eyes move to something or someone behind me. I didn't have to turn around to know that it was probably that waitress again. I also didn't have to turn around to see that she was likely smiling back at him, given the naivete that consumed her when she took his order. I'm not looking for a wife tonight. Stax is what I would call a fair-weather bachelor. Monday through Thursday, he'd go on and on about his plan to someday have a wife. But in the heat of the weekend, no recollection of that sentiment whatsoever. No point in exhausting yourself over something you may never have. And his eyes went back down into the smoothie as he aimlessly circled his straw around in it. And just like that, even a challenge-seeking optimist 
could begin to lose hope under the bleak overcast that is DC's love scene. For others, giving up isn't quite as easy. That night, Jay's Magazine was hosting a networking event at a lounge downtown. And although she had talked Ty into coming with her, she herself didn't actually believe it would happen. But to her surprise, at 8.33 p.m., Ty was right beside her, both head-turning in their evening attire as they entered the room filled with other equally nicely dressed professionals. Jay noticed from the moment she met her at the front door, Ty was very uncomfortable, fidgeting and looking down, and had already asked twice, though they hadn't even gotten their first drink yet, do I look okay? To which Jay replied, twice, you look great. But the third time, she added, Would you calm the fuck down? Shit, it's not that serious. Ty tried to take her advice by first avoiding looking down at her dress, and second, asking something that had nothing to do with the way she looked. So, what is this again? It's a professional social, Jay replied. Just network or flirt, whatever. Ty noticed Jay's eyes scanning the place, and she remembered that Jay was looking for someone in particular. So she asked, So, what does this guy look like again? Oh, he's cute. He's tall, lean, kind of looks like a young Chris Rock. Ty grimaced. Chris Rock? You think Chris Rock is good looking? Really? I mean, yeah, when he's not acting so goddamn goofy, he's kind of sexy, Jay said matter-of-factly. I don't think he's acting. Look, next time you see him on TV, mute it. If you don't hear his goofy-ass mouth, you might see him differently. Ty made up in her mind that they just have to agree to disagree on this. Just then, Ty spotted two men approaching. The tall, lean one was Carl. She could tell that he was the guy Jay was just talking about because he did, in fact, look just like Jay described. Carl smiled as he wrapped one arm around Jay and brought her in for a quick kiss on the cheek. Wow, you look amazing, he said to Jay, who instantly turned into a girly girl as she giggled and blushed with the compliment. And then he wasted no time introducing the guy with him, who was much shorter, a little lighter in complexion, and to Ty's surprise, incredibly attractive to her. But this wasn't exactly a good thing. Perhaps... Had she not been so attracted to him, maybe she wouldn't have immediately become so hot and shaky and sweaty. This is Ahmad, my good friend from back home in St. Louis. He followed me here after college, calls himself an African studies professor. How about that? Ty was born in Nigeria, Jay chimed in. Oh yeah? Ahmad said, intrigued. I just came back from there a couple months ago. Where exactly in Nigeria are you from? Now Ty was nervous for another reason. She knew that this was a perfect conversation starter and that she should feel comfortable beginning here with him. But where exactly she was from 
wasn't a talking point that she preferred to hit this early in an acquaintance. The reason was because it usually drew one of two reactions. Either they were unfamiliar, which then was a pointless use of conversation, or it caused eyebrows to raise because they were, in fact, familiar with the affluent reputation of her part of her hometown, which then triggered a change in behavior, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, Lagos, she answered, hoping he didn't want to get any more specific than that, even though if he did, she'd understand. Lagos was the largest city in the country. It would be like telling someone that you were from New York. Naturally, they might want to know which borough specifically. Okay, he said, sounding inexplicably impressed by this. Yeah, I visited Lagos, but only briefly since I was touring a few countries. He smiled and added, I look forward to talking to you some more about this. She attempted to smile, but knew that she had failed. Meanwhile, Carl was talking closely into Jay's ear, probably something about how good she looked, because she was giving that laugh again. Ty found herself becoming a bit annoyed now by how comfortable Jay was, especially in contrast to her own discomfort level at this point. You look really nice, Ahmad offered in an attempt to cut the quiet between the two of them. And I'm feeling that haircut. It really it brings out your face. Looks, looks real good on you. Ty simply looked at him right in his eyes, which made him uncomfortable now. Now he was the one getting all warm and fidgety. I think we should get ourselves some drinks, Jay's date suggested. Yes, drinks, Ahmad quickly agreed. Just as Jay was set to follow them to the bar, Ty took her arm stopping her. <sighs> Listen, look, I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm so sorry. <sighs> Jay wasn't angry. She got it. In fact, she might have even been expecting this. Ty went on explaining anyway. It's just... <sighs> This whole thing, the, the talking to people, the men, and I just, I can't be here. To that, Jay replied, you want me to come with you? Ty was taken aback by that gesture. She knew Jay loved her, but she had never, not once in her 10 or so years that they had known each other, ever known Jay to choose another entree if there was the slightest chance that sex would be on the menu. Ty had seen the way she and that Carl guy were already all over each other. So to offer to leave and accompany her back to an empty old apartment was not only nice, it was admirable. Or maybe she was just being nice and admirable because she knew that Ty would say exactly what she said, which was, no, no, you stay. It's me. I'm, I'm sorry, okay? I just, you have a good time. I'll just, I'll catch a ride home. Jay nodded, and that was that. She watched as Ty took off and out the door they had just come in. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits.
Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. What we think, we become. Of course, I had to pause the movie to write that down. My evening was being spent very much like I thought, with popcorn and Meryl Streep, though I opted for the Iron Lady over the hours. When the phone rang midway through the second act of the film, it was Ty. Hey, I answered. I could tell she was pacing. She probably phoned me no sooner than she got in and closed the door behind her. She hated talking on the phone while in public. Kenya, I, could, I couldn't do it. I left. And oh, I feel so bad leaving Jay there. I didn't know what to say. My friend had been trying for weeks now to get back to normal, but I could tell that this was going to be a familiar conversation. Ty had not found a way to return to normal yet. She had been in one relationship for the better part of her adult life. She had given this one person everything, every part of her, all of her time, all of her attention, all of her. She was building a life, and it was supposed to be with him forever. But now, all of that had changed. The betrayal, the deceit, the pain. It all felt like it was her fault for either allowing it or choosing this guy as her forever in the first place. Ah, she'll be fine, I said, regarding Jay. And you are just not ready yet. And that's okay. There was silence. Since I was five years old, my hair has always been the first thing anybody noticed about me. It was the source of every compliment I ever got from men and from women. It was the thing, even he told me, that initially attracted him to me, so... I could tell that she was holding back tears as she thought about her soon-to-be ex-husband. I guess now that it's gone, all that's left is me. And that has to be enough. Pretty enough, attractive enough, good enough, enough, you know? Her question was rhetorical. I even let the silence enter so that she could think about the answer to that herself. And then I offered. I mean, if it means anything, I personally like the Lupita look. I think it's working for you. But, I mean, you're gorgeous either way. I smiled. And I could tell that this made her smile, too. Thank you. <sighs> Kenya, oh, I did not plan for this. You think I'll ever recover? And that's another thing about love in a place like D.C. When it's gone... It'll make you feel like it took everything you had with it. But 
if it was never there, well, then you never have to feel the violation of being robbed. This was the advantage had by those like Jay. Who, by the way, did go home with that Chris Rock-looking dude and did have incredible, meaningless sex. And other than the pleasure felt that night, on multiple occasions, as she later informed me, she would not feel anything. No pain, no betrayal, no deceit, no regrets. So I thought about Ty's question to me, if I thought she would ever recover. And I responded, of course you'll recover. And you'll be even better than the you with the good hair. She caught the Beyonce reference and found humor in it, as well as relief. For some reason, she believed me, even though I had no experience whatsoever that would validate my wise words to her about overcoming a failed marriage. You just need time, I went on like I knew what I was talking about. Look, tomorrow's a new day. Start over. You get a fresh set of 24 to maybe try something new. Fortunately for me, my new set of 24 was a bust. Three hours left in the day and not an inch closer to finding out who was running that show at 930 Club. But that night, my focus was back on TK. When I got to the radio station, she was already there, armed and ready for her 15 minutes of locally broadcasted fame. She was even going over some questions she had pulled from listening to previous interviews that the show's host had done with other upcoming acts so that she would have some properly crafted answers when asked. <laughs> I must admit, I was quite impressed. Salam alaikum, I said as I approached. Walaikum salam, she responded. And without missing a beat, she went right into probing me for the best approach. Hey, when they ask me who was my biggest influence in music growing up, you think I should stick to just rappers or talk about some of the other genres? Because I listen to a lot of jazz and like rock and stuff like that. I, what time did you get here again? I asked, realizing that it was two minutes to nine. Uh, I don't know, eight, 15. Someone let me in. I think it was an intern. Because I worked in radio... In fact, I had actually interned at this very station years ago. I knew that a nine o'clock interview would have started prep before this point. She saw the wrinkle-browed expression of deep contemplation on my face and became nervous right away. What? What is it? I quickly straightened my face and lied. Nothing. I stood up and started looking around for someone. Anyone. Then a familiar voice filled the station. 
It's your girl, Millie Cruz, and you're listening to On Blast on DC's number one station for hip-hop and R&B. We got a very special guest stopping through shortly, but first, let's get into the latest from the Hush fam. Hush LV, Hustle Until Success Happens. This one is called Made in Japan, and you know you heard it first right here on Hot 92.9 WEDC. I'm Mr. Just then, a young woman quickly came through the door that separated the lobby from the important part of the station and breezed by us straight toward the entry door. It was her. her. She's the one who let me in and told me to sit here, TK informed. Um, excuse me. But she was already opening the entry door, and the noise coming from the people she was letting in drowned out my voice. I heard her tell the group, Hi, I'm Christina, the production assistant. Let me show you to the studio. I counted seven guys and one girl. And then I recognized the guy in the middle of the pack. Wale, a major label artist from D.C. who had sold millions of records, sold out countless shows, and had obviously been here a number of times before because he led the group right past us and through the double doors to the studio. I didn't manage more than an excuse me before the intern and the group was out of sight. But before pessimism could set in, I was in luck. Amelia, that vegan host who I had made the agreement with, came through the doors headed in another direction. She didn't even see us. Hey, I yelled and then went to track her down. Off guard, she turned and said, Oh, hey, it's you. Uh, we're supposed to have an interview on your show at nine? I hadn't realized that TK had gotten up, followed me, and was standing right beside me. Oh, uh, right, Taj Kamal, yeah, the local thing, she said, avoiding looking at TK. <sighs> Look, um, Wale just dropped in. Wanted to debut his new shit. I don't even think we're doing that 15 minutes of fame thing segment tonight. Look, my hands are tied. I mean, it's Wale. Well, what about next week? TK asked. And Amelia just looked at her now, almost like she hated to say this, but we have set scheduled guests for all of our shows and <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. I said, when I go out on a limb and give a girl my cupcakes, I expect it to mean something. Realizing how that sounded, I quickly turned to TK and clarified, it, it's, not, it's not at all what it sounds like. No, it's exactly what it sounds like, Amelia said. TK's eyes widened and her brows went up, revealing all kinds of judgment on her face. So I tried to better clarify. See, um, what happened was, in order to actually get you this interview, I gave her... She brought me vegan cupcakes. And Amelia bit her bottom lip as she considered her next statement. <sighs> Tell you what. Stick around. I'll keep you on standby. Time opens up in the show. I'll put you on. TK and I looked at each other and agreed without saying a word. We'd stay. Made it, made it, made it, made it. 
We sat there for two and a half hours. Apparently, time never did open up. Which got me to thinking, is there a master plan to all of this? Or are we just writing our stories as we go? If so, I'm curious how much say we actually have in how the story goes. I spend my days worried about the path that I pave. I've seen this world in black and white, its color I Before I knew it, Sunday was here, and according to all the pointless research I had done, Gavin DeGraw was likely in the air, on his way to D.C., and would never know about my efforts. Lucas had made himself comfortable in my chair behind the desk in my office slash basement that he seemed to think was the most comfortable chair he had ever been in. It was a plain old Ikea swivel. And he was strumming his guitar to the tune of something he had written earlier. When I entered the room with two mugs of tea and motioned to hand him one, he stopped playing and put the guitar across his lap to retrieve it. But before taking a sip... He continued the complaints he'd started when he first came in, 20 minutes earlier. It wasn't supposed to go like this. Do they even know how many views I get online and subscribers and followers and stuff? He stopped to sip his tea. Mm, This is good. But man, I deserve that spot. Man, I should be up on that stage tonight. Dude, this is so not fair. I only half listened as he went on and on about how this latest failed attempt to get him on that stage at 930 Club was a mistake on the club's part and perhaps a lack of true effort on mine. I mean, listening to him, you would think that this was an overall tragedy in the world of music. Looking like a lost member of One Direction with his thick, curly brown mane and sometimes green, sometimes blue eyes, he was already prepared physically heartthrob status. He still, however, had a very long way to go if he wanted a career to go along with it. Lucas was still a few months away from turning 21, so I took everything he said about almost everything with a grain of salt. I'm not discounting the struggles he's had in his very young life so far, and they are numerous. 
But as an artist, he was expecting a fairy tale that almost never happens, which was to be discovered and become a star simply because he was naturally good at what he did. Now forget about paying dues, forget about honing his craft, forget about putting in those proverbial 10,000 hours that Gladwell talks about. Lucas wanted to be, as TK jokingly called him, Justin Bieber. When I helped him put up his first video online and it got 4,000 views in one week, that was it. Scooter Braun should have been calling. He should have been making money doing this. The whole world should have stopped and listened to him because he was just that good. Right? Wrong. And for the last two years since we started working together, I've had to find creative, gentle, and or clever ways to show him or tell him that he still had work to do. Lots and lots of work to do. Lucas was cute, male, straight, and white. And although he was not savvy enough yet to know that in America, having three of these four things together would always be enough. But I knew that innately, something inside of him was telling him that it should be. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I was up against. So this wasn't the first time that I had watched him pout and slouch and complain about what he wasn't getting and even questioned my efforts of getting it for him. He turned his attention to the screen of my open laptop, mindlessly using his fingers to scroll up and down the page as he went on with his spiel. Did you talk to everybody you could? I mean, did you go to the top? I'm sure if the people at the top heard my music, they would be like, yeah, we should put him on that stage, right? Because really, Kenya, think about it. All those videos I've done have all gotten like, he stopped to think, trying to do the math, like a few million views, I'm sure. And I perform at all those schools and and stuff all the time. He shook his head and sipped his tea. And I just watched and listened. Man, I feel like crap. You supposed to you supposed to do something like build me up or something. Make me feel better about all this. I took my time considering this. To this end, we'd had some success, but only by indie music standards, which meant we still had a very, very long way to go. Getting on that stage was something both Lucas and I wanted badly. But for Lucas, it was for the bragging rights to be able to say that he had conquered the same stage that many of his musical heroes had. For me, it was a DC thing. I knew what that stage and that venue symbolized. I'd gotten Lucas in front of nearly every possible crowd in D.C. The schools, the hole-in-the-wall music venues, the festivals, not to mention the blogs and papers had all done really great write-ups on him. The love outside the city was insane. Ohio, West Virginia, and Delaware alone were the reasons I could pay off my laptop a month early. I wanted to solidify his presence, our presence, in D.C. That stage to me, would do that. And honestly, I thought we were ready. I mean, I thought I had done enough to warrant getting one of my artists on that stage now. So with a calculated approach, I said to him, well, 
My job is to steer you in the right direction creatively, get you recorded, distributed, and onto the fingertips, into the ears, and in front of the eyes of people who will buy you. And to this point, I've done a damn good job of doing that. I'm sorry if that doesn't build you up or make you feel good enough. He stared at his guitar, perhaps taking this all to heart. Your name, Lucas, will be enough to get you on that stage one day. I promise you that. But today is just not that day. Still focusing on the screen of the open laptop, he took a deep breath, took a sip of his tea, and took a few seconds before he said, Well, I'm sitting here. With you. Not in front of people who will buy my music, so... What's your plan? And there was that word again. Plan. I was the planner. I was always planning for us because that was my job. It's what I was supposed to do. They do the artist stuff. I do the other stuff, which included planning business success. But maybe I should have conceded, said that I was beat, that I just didn't have any more plans left in me at the moment. However... I couldn't. I was the one steering the ship. I wasn't that eight-year-old anymore. I was supposed to know where I was going now. But the only thing I knew for sure was that nothing was going according to my plans. Finally, Lucas stopped toying with the laptop, leaving the screen exactly where he'd found it. And that was when I saw what had been looking back at him the whole time. An article I had been reading about Wooly Ortega, that Venezuelan violinist I had seen outside the embassy that day I was with Solomon. And then it hit me. That was it. So I said to him, Yo, pack up your guitar. Let's go. to get in 930 Club that night was wrapped around the block. With Lucas following me, I managed to squeeze by and into the front door to get to the ticket booth, immediately noticing a banner up on the wall with the words, Tonight, Gavin DeGraw with Hannah Ellis opening. Choosing to ignore it, I gave my attention to a girl wearing all black with black hair, black nails, and black lipstick. I quickly noted the name, Grace, on a Hi My Name Is sticker plastered across her chest. Before I could say hi and introduce myself, she said, very routinely, 
Um, we not letting people in yet. I didn't know exactly where I should begin, so I just began. Uh, hi, Grace. Um, I'm not here to... I need to talk to the organizer. Look, all hookups are written here on this list. She pointed at a clipboard without even looking at it. Now, if I look down at this list, will your name be on it? Well, no, no not exactly. No, see... <sighs> look, miss, I'm going to have to ask you to step to the back of the line. Lucas gave a loud exhale behind me and whispered, This? This was your plan? Before turning and sliding back out the door we just came in pissed. Before I could respond or catch him to maybe explain, I saw Bonnie, the GM I failed to impress, approaching, perhaps to say something to Grace, but she spotted me just as she stopped. And she gave me one of those half smiles as she asked, you here for the show or to convince us that after 30 plus years, we now need you in order to pull one off. I deserve that. In this business, I've learned that your reputation is often all you have. And in an effort to come across as some brilliant, savvy mastermind, to be taken seriously, to be respected, and to really be seen as somebody, I had in fact made one of the most powerful people in my industry and in my city believe that I was just another arrogant, incompetent, entitled punk. I wanted to apologize. I wanted to explain. I wanted to cry. But I certainly couldn't do that. In a last-ditch effort to get somewhere, I just said, Listen, look, my guy is really, really good. I mean... And mid-sentence, disregarding everything I was saying, she leaned over and whispered to Grace, We're going to start letting people in in about ten minutes. At least here take a CD. And I was pointing one of Lucas's discs at her, hoping that she'd take it. If not to reconsider my botched proposal, to at the very least not hold it against Lucas in the future. She sighed while looking at the disc in my hand and then at me. Keep your CD. But I don't need a CD, she added before I could insist. I have the internet. I listen. She nodded as I hung on to every word coming out of her mouth. She turned as if she was done, but doubled back and threw in, Janet Fuller, that's who you need. She books the big shows around here. She'll give you a listen. And I wanted to smile, but I kept that tucked away for later. I'd already planned to smile once I got outside. Before I could thank her, she was already gone. Lucas was sitting outside on the curb a few feet away from the line, watching people as they walked up and then realized how far back they actually needed to go to get in line. That, that wasn't the plan, I told him. And he looked up at me, confused. That was a last-ditch effort to get you on that stage. But you're out here with me, so... Uh, yeah, no, didn't work. But, uh, get, get your guitar out. He didn't understand. Look, man, you may not be sharing that stage with Gavin DeGraw tonight, but you will play for his audience. This, this is your stage. Your album, 
these are the people who will buy it. I looked around at all the people walking around, biding time before the doors opened for them to be let in to hear one of their favorite artists perform. Not much different from the people standing outside that embassy watching Willie Ortega. No, maybe he wasn't the reason why they had come, but maybe he was the reason why they didn't mind so much standing outside in that moment. I felt like this was the perfect opportunity to emulate that. And to prove my point, I got more specific with Lucas. Like her, she'd definitely buy it, I said about a college-aged girl. And her? And those girls? As a group tried to find the end of the line? And him, him right there, he, he'll definitely buy it. And that guy, and that guy right there, and... All right, all right, I get it, Lucas said, finally getting up from the ground. I'd heard Lucas, but at this point, honestly, I didn't even care. Because standing at the door talking, all chummy and buddy-like with Bonnie, of all people, was him, yes, that him from the computer store, Dream Guy, the chocolatey one with the eyes and that beard, my God. (sighs) He and two other guys were chatting it up with Bonnie like they were old friends. And I just stood there, not able or willing to look away. But looking was all I could do. I couldn't remember a single word of that imaginary conversation I'd had with him in the store that day, the simulated encounter where I was all confident and transparent and whatnot. Here I was, given a second chance, and still, again, I had no idea what to do with it. I just stood there, watching, as he actually checked out of the conversation with the group and began scanning the area like he might have been new or unfamiliar with the neighborhood and was taking it all in. Maybe it was fate, or just plain happenstance, but Lucas began singing a cover of Alicia Keys' You don't know my name, right on cue. No better lyrics to suit my current situation. I watched as Dream Guy nonchalantly scanned the crowd, giving every single person a second or two, until his eyes eventually landed right on me. And that moment felt like forever. And for that moment, those two, maybe even four seconds, I couldn't look away. Until I did. I looked down of all places to look. I I admit to the chink in my armor. Because here's the thing. I'm a 27-year-old kid from D.C. with no siblings who dropped out of college after just two semesters, so not exactly the subject of bragging for my parents. I don't have a degree. I don't have any money. I don't have a lot of connections. I don't have a team of people working with me in order to make my company, or me, successful. And depending on who you ask, I'm dealing with the wrong artists if I expect to see some success in this music business. Not to even mention, I'm probably in the wrong town for this kind of thing anyway. So I don't have a whole lot going for me. But what I do have 
is exactly what it takes to be great. The willingness to be wrong or embarrassed or misunderstood or disliked. The willingness to flat out fail and then turn over and get back up for more. I am going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm going to be bad at my job sometimes. I may not always be the ideal friend, the perfect daughter, or even the best partner. I'm going to hurt people sometimes, perhaps with negligence, never with malice. I'm going to give good advice and bad advice, and I'm going to suck sometimes at taking advice. But when it's all said and done, I'm going to have a hand in helping some of the most talented musicians reach the world with their music and become one of the most influential figures in the entertainment industry of my generation. But like I said, today, I'm just a girl from D.C. selling CDs and MP3s. It's like Little Miss Nobody. But someday, I'm going to be great. And this, this is the story of how I'll do it. So when I look back up, all I saw was Dream Guy's back as he disappeared into the club, leaving the ironic smell of chocolate in the air. And that night, I missed the opportunity to perhaps meet someone that I desperately wanted to get to know because of fear. False expectations appearing real. I promise you, though, fear will not continue to paralyze me, my love or my professional life, forever. But I couldn't dwell on what-ifs right now, especially when Lucas was drawing actually quite the crowd at the moment. Some were even putting money into his guitar case without me even asking. So I took the opportunity to begin trading CDs for cash. Because that's the thing. With life, I just roll with the punches. With music, eh, with music, I have a plan. I always have a plan. But with men, I have no idea what I'm doing. was a recap of episode one tune in next week for the start of episode two